The pandemic created big challenges for the nation's immigration courts, which are used to doing business in person. But according to the Government Accountability Office, DOJ's Executive Office for Immigration Review, the agency that runs the courts, could have done a better job adapting to virtual. Inconsistent policies and a lack of stakeholder engagement made things more difficult than they needed to be. Rebecca Gambler is Director of Homeland Security and Justice Issues at the GAO. She talked about their findings with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Rebecca, thanks for doing this. And the report certainly gets into a lot of detail about some of the challenges immigration courts faced because of COVID, just in terms of the mechanics of running a court and the throughput of the decisions judges were able to make, especially in those early days after the pandemic first hit. Can you start by just giving us a big picture of some of your observations on, again, the challenges that courts face and the extent to which they've overcome them since those early days? Absolutely. There were three main areas that we looked at as part of our report, and let me focus on two of those areas first. The first area that we looked at related to how Eeyore modified its operations in response to the pandemic. And with regard to that area, we found that Eeyore took several steps to respond to the pandemic to adapt its operations and help address uh, health and safety needs. Those steps included, for example, initially suspending immigration court hearings for individuals who were not in immigration detention facilities. And data that we have from the immigration courts indicated that they delayed nearly 600,000 hearings from March through October 2020 due to court closures. Other steps that the immigration courts took included holding hearings by video conference or telephone, also modifying processes for when attorneys, for example, were to drop off hard copy documents to be filed with the immigration courts, modifying those processes to help reduce physical interactions. The immigration courts are within the Executive Office for Immigration Review, or EOR, uh, which is a component of the Department of Justice. And through our work, we also found that EOR distributed various guidance documents to immigration court staff regarding protocols that included health and safety requirements. However, we identified two issues with those guidance documents. First, we found that the guidance documents did not specifically direct court staff and court visitors to wear masks in courtrooms during the duration of hearings. This is pretty important because immigration courtrooms are not typical office settings and so can present some unique circumstances. And we identified instances in which immigration judges did not always require or wear masks in their courtrooms. The second issue we found with EOR's guidance was that it wasn't kept up to date regarding criteria for how to address processes for responding to COVID-19 exposures at immigration courts. And in particular, we found that EOR's guidance was relying on an outdated definition of a close contact and didn't reflect updates that EOR made to that definition throughout the pandemic. 
The second area we looked at as it related to EOR operations during the pandemic was how EOR communicated or engaged with court stakeholders, and that would include respondents, attorneys, private bar associations, and so on. And we found that EOR used different communication mechanisms that were the same mechanisms EOR uses to regularly communicate with the public, and that would include things like social media accounts, email and its public website. But the stakeholders that we spoke with told us that they had limited opportunities to engage with EOR during the pandemic. And these concerns were heightened during the pandemic, even though they sort of also existed prior to the pandemic. Yeah, I just wanted to flag that just to make sure people don't get the impression that this fell off during the pandemic. They really had not done any meaningful stakeholder engagement for the past four years. Is that right? That's right. So from the fall of 2017 through April 2021, EOR had generally stopped holding regular stakeholder meetings. And the stakeholders that we spoke with for our work said these meetings had historically really provided, you know, a good opportunity for two-way communication with EOR. So these regular stakeholder meetings had sort of fallen off even before the pandemic, but the pandemic kind of heightened stakeholders concerns about those limited interactions with EOR. And I just wanted to go back to one of the earlier points you made about the fact that some 600,000 hearings were delayed. A lot of that's obviously understandable, that the whole world was kind of in chaos in those first few months and nobody quite knew how to do normal operations. But it seems like at least part of this was it took EOR a fairly long time to figure out how to do virtual hearings until October, a good seven months there. Did your work uncover any kind of sense that they could have managed more cases had they moved to virtual options or managed courtrooms a little bit more efficiently before October? As you noted, our report did find that EOR initially suspended hearings for individuals who were not in immigration detention facilities while they were awaiting resolution of their court cases. In late June, EOR did resume a limited number of hearings for individuals who were not detained. And as of earlier this year, April 2021, EOR told us that about 32 of 50 immigration courts that had cases where individuals were not detained had resumed hearings. You know, our work really spoke to the need for EOR to have in place and keep updated its guidance documents so that immigration courts know how to operate, including things like ensuring that their guidance is specifically tailored to mask wearing in courtrooms and also is updated to reflect current processes and criteria to use in making decisions about when COVID-19 exposures occur in immigration courts. Yeah, important point you made a second ago, which is that there are two different categories of immigrants coming before the court here, the detained and the non-detained. And I suppose the effect of all these continuances on the non-detained would simply be that their removal is delayed for the detained. It probably just means their detention is extended. Is that a fair assumption? That's right. And for those individuals who are in immigration proceedings and who are in detention facilities, so individuals who are detained, EOR generally did not postpone their hearings. And that's in part because hearings for those individuals have historically been deemed a priority for EOR. 
And just to finish up on one last point, which is you also examined immigrants' access to counsel as part of a pretty extensive appendix in this report. Finish us up here by telling us a little bit about what you found, how the pandemic impacted their access to counsel. Absolutely. EOR has two specific programs that we looked at that provide legal information to different populations regarding immigration court processes and possible forms of relief from removal. And what we found through our work was that near the beginning of the pandemic, most of the providers who provide those services to those target populations switched from in-person services to offering virtual or more remote options. An example of that would be, you know, for example, use of uh, pre-recorded videos to be shown to individuals who are in immigration detention facilities. And so those service providers did make changes to the services in response to the pandemic. Rebecca Gambler, Director of Homeland Security and Justice Issues at the GAO, speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Find this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Uh, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, 
situations changed and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to, to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that, I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell C-Stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters 
um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.